This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon. Uh, welcome to the University of Chicago Law School. My name is Thomas Miles. Uh, I'm the Dean Designate of the Law School. It's my pleasure and honor to introduce today's guest, FBI Director James Comey. Uh, many of you are already familiar with Director Comey and what a distinguished career he's had. It was just last June that the law school uh, conferred on Director Comey the Distinguished Alumni Award, and the director honored us by delivering an inspiring address to our 2015 graduates. Director Comey's career began as a member of the class of 1985 at the law school, where he worked in the Mandel Legal Aid Clinic. His career highlights include service in the U.S. Attorney's offices in the Southern District of New York and the Eastern District of Virginia. He was the U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York and the Deputy Attorney General. In 2013, President Obama nominated James Comey to become the FBI Director. And last February, Director Comey did something that no previous FBI Director has done. He delivered an address in which he called for a national conversation about race and law enforcement. In so doing, Director Comey identified what he called several hard truths about police and the communities they serve, especially communities of color. Director Comey also called for the collection of more comprehensive data about arrests and the police use of force. In describing these hard truths, Director Comey acknowledged that these conversations can be bumpy and uncomfortable, but they are necessary to help improve our understanding. These conversations can help law enforcement better serve their communities. This view of the importance of thoughtful dialogue and reliance on evidence is also a core value of the law school and the University of Chicago as a whole. Edward Levy was a member of the class, law school class of, 19, of 1935. He became president of the university and served as attorney general of the United States. Edward Levy described it this way. Real discussion and real inquiry are not easy. We should not expect them to be. Inquiry means that we should put ourselves to the test of finding out what's wrong with what we think in unsettling, disconcerting, and at times most unwelcome pursuit. But Attorney General Levy also told us why this difficult inquiry is so necessary. He said, the kind of inquiry and discussion, this kind of inquiry and discussion, can, better, can forge better instruments of law. The quality of our discussion will determine the quality of our law. Director Comey's willingness to risk the bumpy and uncomfortable conversation in order to improve the enforcement of law and to make it more just is very much in keeping with the law school's commitment to intellectual inquiry. It's especially fitting, then, that Director Comey has chosen to return to the law school as a place to continue this conversation about law enforcement and the communities they serve. I'm very glad that he's chosen to, done so, has chosen to do so. Please join me in welcoming FBI Director James Comey back home to the law school. Thank you, uh, Dean Designate. Tom, it's so great to be back here. Uh, thank you, folks, for joining. I'm having all kinds of flashbacks 
uh, sitting in this space. I think this is where we did the law school musical, where I did not, I did not attempt to sing, or it would be memorable for a lot of other reasons. Uh, it is great to be home in a place where I spent three years of my life and that I still consider part of me. I graduated in 1985, which to many of you must seem like the 1800s, but to me it does seem like yesterday. When I first walked into this building, I can remember feeling a mix of fear and anxiety. Um, I also felt uh, excitement and anticipation. I, I hope and expect those are the emotions of nearly all first years. For me, law school was a time of joy and hope. Joy at finding myself learning the law, learning how to orbit a problem, to ask myself hard questions, and to be asked hard questions and to answer them with an open mind. It was also a time of hope, hope that I could be of some use, that I might be able to be part of doing something for others, be part of a greater good. I know that sounds idealistic, but I believe that all law students, in a sense, are idealistic because I think all law students share a fascination with the law, the idea of what it could be, what it should be, the notion of protecting civil rights and civil liberties, the idea of moving the law to protect people and to right wrongs. Uh, When I was in law school, I didn't know exactly what kind of lawyer I wanted to be, but my hope was that I would find a job that would allow me to make a difference in some small way. This school gave me the confidence and the tools to do that, and I'm extremely grateful. At the time that I was at this great law school, uh, this community, the South Side, was also my community. The neighborhood was a place that I would go when I needed a break from the pressures of this place, and there are a few pressures at Chicago Law School. Um, Back then, I played basketball, maybe too much basketball, when I think back. Uh, In 1983... My second year of law school, I became the only white player in the Ogden Park Basketball League at 65th and Racine. My teammates, who were awesome guys, joked that I'd integrated the league, (laughs) which I guess is true. They uh, admitted that they weren't much focused on integration. They were focused on winning, and they knew that you can't teach height. (laughs) I remember them saying, he can't jump, but he sure is tall ask him to play. And then the next season, I brought the second white player in the Ogden Park Basketball League. And with a group of guys who played the game beautifully, I was lucky enough to be part of a championship team in that great league. Like my law professors and my fellow law students, my teammates helped me see life through different eyes. We all had different histories and different perspectives, but we all wanted to play a game we loved for a few hours. And we did so. In 1985, as I was getting ready to leave Chicago, we all started to see ominous changes in the neighborhood. They were not good. It was when crack cocaine was starting to spread like a cancer in Chicago and around America. Kids were shooting kids in turf battles over the sale of cocaine. Innocent people were getting caught in the crossfire. And violent crime and homicide was starting to rise dramatically. It was the beginning of a period during which American cities and minority neighborhoods in particular experienced historic and horrific levels of violent crime. It was also a time when I chose a career in government, trying to be part of doing something useful, a choice that I've never regretted. And it's one I would encourage all of you to consider, no matter what kind of public service you pursue for at least part of your career. Now I stand here all these years later, facing a time when so many of our communities are once again troubled. And the trouble is complicated, it is layered, 
and it is painful. I imagine two lines. One line is law enforcement. The other line are the, is the communities that we serve and protect, especially communities of color. And what I see are those two lines arcing away from each other, actually at an increasing rate. Each incident that involves real police misconduct or perceived police misconduct drives this line this way. Each incident that involves an attack on or murder of a police officer drives this line this way. As I said, I actually feel the arcs not only bending away from each other, but bending away from each other more quickly and more quickly, incident by incident, video by video, and that is a terrible place to be. And just as those lines are arcing away from each other, and maybe because they are arcing away from each other, we have a crisis of violent crime in some of our most vulnerable communities around the country. Here in Chicago, just last month, more than 50 people were shot in a single weekend. And the next weekend, the numbers rose even higher. An 11-month-old boy was shot in the hip. His mother and grandmother were shot and killed right next to him. In some cities across the country, we are seeing a similar explosion of senseless violence. The victims of these crimes aren't just numbers or blips on somebody's screen. They are parents and children and friends. They are young people who could have done so much with their lives. This is not a time for not in my neighborhood, not my problem. When that kind of violence becomes part of the American experience, wherever it is, everybody pays a price, and it will take everyone to make it right, to make sure that those lines start to arc, not away from each other, but start to arc towards each other, toward a better understanding of what we all need from one another and how we can get there together. Let me start by telling you a little bit about my history as a prosecutor. After leaving this great place, I worked in the 1980s and 90s as a federal prosecutor, and I worked beside many in law enforcement who were working very hard to try to save lives. Many in New York City, where I worked then, believed that we would have a structural level of violence that was at least 2,000 murders each year, that 2,000 was simply the baseline that we had to accept, and that the job of law enforcement was to try and push the carnage down towards 2,000. That was so wrong. Last year, 2014, 328 people were murdered in the city of New York. That is 328 too many, but it is a number that was simply unimaginable 25 years ago. When I worked in Richmond, Virginia in the 1990s as a federal prosecutor, that city, like so much of America, was experiencing horrific levels of violent crime. But to describe it that way actually obscures an important truth. For the most part, white people weren't dying. Black people were dying. Most white people could drive around the problem. If you were white and not involved in the drug trade, as either a buyer or a seller, you could be largely apart from the violence. You could escape it. But if you were black and poor, it didn't matter whether you were a player in the drug trade or not, because violent crime dominated your life, your neighborhood, your world. There was no way to drive around the violence that came with the drug trade, and the drug trade was everywhere in your neighborhood. And that meant the violence was everywhere. The notion of a nonviolent drug gang member would have elicited only a tired laugh from a resident of Richmond's worst neighborhoods, because the entire trade at that point was a plague of violence that strangled Richmond's black neighborhoods. Whether you were a looker, a runner, a mill worker, an enforcer, or a dealer, 
It was all cut from the same suffocating cloth. Whether they pulled the trigger or not, those folks were killing the community. Like so many in law enforcement in the 1980s and 90s, we worked very hard to try to save lives in Richmond. We focused on trying to save lives in those neighborhoods, in those black neighborhoods, rooting out the drug dealers, the predators, the gangbangers, the killers. And of course, we worked up the chain all the way to Columbia to try to lock up the major dealers. But we felt tremendous urgency to try to do something to save lives in the poor neighborhoods of Richmond. We worked in part through a program that was called Weed and Seed. We worked hard to weed those neighborhoods by removing those who were strangling it so that seeds could be planted that would allow good things to grow and to fill that space. The idea was, the dream was, that maybe someday the kids could play in those parks and the old folks could sit on the porch and watch those kids play. As we did that work, I remember being asked why we were doing so much prosecuting in black neighborhoods in Richmond and why we were locking up so many black men. After all, Richmond was surrounded, still is, by areas with largely white populations. Surely, I was asked, there must be drug dealers in the suburbs. And my answer was simple. We are there in those neighborhoods because that's where people are dying. That is where the people are who are choking off the life of the neighborhood. That is why we're trying to lock up those predators. We did that work because we believe that all lives matter, especially the most vulnerable. But the people asking those questions were actually not the black ministers or community leaders in those hard-hit areas, in those poorest neighborhoods. Because those good people in those bad neighborhoods already knew why we were there, locking up felons with guns and drug addicts with guns. They supported it because they too dreamed of a future of freedom and life for their neighborhoods. Those leaders and ministers were the cedars who hoped to grow in the space we created something that would be healthy and that would last. Over the last two decades, in most places in America, what was only a dream 25 years ago has come true. Kids of all colors went to school in 2014 in America with historically low crime around them. And just that term, historically low, doesn't quite capture the difference between 1990 and 2014. To illustrate what I'm talking about, when I was born in 1960, it was into a more violent America than we had in 2014. In 2014, grandparents, especially in minority neighborhoods, could sit on the porch in a way they hadn't when they were younger and watch the kids play. And remember the bad old days when gangbangers and drug dealers ruled the roost. They remember what it was like, even if many Americans can't, because so many Americans were lucky enough not to have experienced it. To achieve a historically peaceful America, especially in the hardest-hit neighborhoods, a whole lot of young men, especially of color, went to jail. Folks can debate and should debate the causes of decline in crime, but I believe all serious people agree that law enforcement contributed significantly to saving neighborhoods and lives by the thousands. The work of law enforcement helped get us to 2014, a place that most people, especially in law enforcement, thought impossible. Reasonable people can disagree about whether sentences were too long, and I think some really good work is going on now at the federal level, bipartisan work, led from Capitol Hill and the Department of Justice to try to adjust federal sentencing to be more just, and that's good to do. And there's also no doubt that unaddressed drug addiction 
was a root cause of many of those who were locked up for property crimes or other nonviolent offenses. But I hope we will debate sentencing reform with a fair and honest understanding of history and try to avoid things that confuse or distort reality. Nobody disappeared from Richmond, Virginia, or New York, or Detroit, or L.A. in the 1980s and 1990s. Instead, case by case, people were arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced. They didn't disappear. They were removed from their neighborhoods to state or federal prisons, receiving the protections of our Constitution and to a place where they were visited by family, friends, and lawyers. There is no doubt that each of those convictions and each of those jail terms was, in some sense, a tragedy. There is no doubt that the pain and impact for families left behind was enormous and lasting. There is no doubt that many were left feeling they were forced to choose safety over justice. But each time a predator or drug dealer was removed from the street to prison, that neighborhood got a little better. And it didn't happen en masse. Each drug dealer, each mugger, each killer, each felon with a gun had his own lawyer, his own case, his own time before a judge and jury, his own sentencing, and in many cases, an appeal or post-conviction challenge. There were thousands and thousands of those individual cases. But to speak of mass incarceration, I believe, is confusing and can obscure reality. I believe we have to stare hard at reality and see it clearly if we are to make good decisions. That work added up to a very large number of people in jail, especially young men of color. But then there were very large numbers of young men of color involved in criminal activity in America's cities, and especially in America's most dangerous neighborhoods. Each arrest, each prosecution was a failure on multiple levels of our society, and there are many reasons for those failures stretching back many, many years, frankly, to the beginning of this great nation and before that. But the pulling of those many weeds, as painful as it was, allowed churches, schools, community groups, and parents to plant seeds to grow healthy neighborhoods. Neighborhoods that are free and alive in 2014 in ways that were unimaginable 25 years ago. We cannot lose sight of that. A problem we face today is that nobody speaks for those who have not been victimized in recent years because they don't exist. There are tens of thousands of people who were not murdered or raped or robbed or mugged or intimidated because crime dropped to historic low in this country. The victims don't exist, so they aren't a constituency. They can't talk to any of us. They can't talk to the press. They can't talk to Congress. There are millions of people, people of color, who in 2014 enjoyed their lives and enjoyed their neighborhoods in ways that were impossible in 1990. They were not, in 2014, trapped in their homes, putting their kids to sleep in bathtubs to keep them safe from stray bullets. So they are not here to participate in what is a very important discussion. They're out living. Somehow, we need to imagine their voices in the current debate about justice in this country as we strive to make ourselves more just. We have come far as a nation, but we still have weed-choked neighborhoods. We heard the voices of real live victims just this past August in northwest Arkansas when the FBI and our partners sent hundreds of agents and officers into the predominantly black town of Blytheville, where drug dealers were suffocating that community and overwhelming the local police. As our SWAT team stood in the street following the arrests of the defendants, 70 of them, nearly all of whom were black, they were met by applause, hugs, and offers of food from the good people in that besieged community. 
Those are the voices that we have to remember and have to be part of our conversation. And of course, we must also hear the voices of those who were incarcerated, those who were left behind. We need to strive to punish effectively and reintegrate more successfully than we ever have. We need to deal with issues of addiction and the demand for drugs, which we have failed to adequately address for generations in this country. Sure, it's true that young men of color have long been dramatically overrepresented among both homicide victims and killers. But it's also true that white people, white people buy and use most of the drugs in this country. White people's demand for drugs drives that drug trade that for so long has suffocated non-white neighborhoods. And that's a problem our society cannot continue to drive around. And of course, we have to improve the way we police. As I said in a speech I gave earlier this year at Georgetown, there are hard truths that we in law enforcement must see clearly. Only by looking hard at ourselves can we improve and really connect with the people we serve and protect. But as we struggle to reexamine our criminal justice system, which surely must be done because surely it can be more just, I hope we don't lose sight of how we got here. Perhaps it is true, as someone once said, that the only thing new is the history you don't know. Yes, we put a whole lot of people in jail. But over that same period, our cities were transformed. Lives were saved. Lives that matter enormously. And we can't forget that as we try to get better. Part of being clear-eyed about reality requires us to stare and stare hard at what's happening in this country this year and ask ourselves, what's going on? Because something deeply disturbing is happening in places across America. I have spoken about 2014 and what I've just said in the last few minutes on purpose because something has changed in a lot of places in 2015. Far more people are being killed in some of America's cities than in many years. And let's be clear, far more people of color are being killed in American cities this year. And it's not the cops doing the killing. We are right to focus on violent encounters between law enforcement and civilians because those incidents can teach us all to be better. But something different and disturbing is happening. Many of America's 50 largest cities have seen an increase in homicides and shootings this year, and many of them have seen a huge increase. These are cities with little in common except being American cities. Chicago, Tampa, Minneapolis, Sacramento, Nashville, Orlando, Cleveland, and Dallas. In Washington, D.C., we've seen an increase in homicides of more than 20% in neighborhoods across the city. Baltimore, a city of 600,000 souls, is averaging more than one homicide a day, a rate that is higher than that of New York City, which has 13 times the people. Milwaukee's rate has nearly doubled in the first 10 months of this year. And who's dying? Police chiefs say the increase is almost entirely among young men of color at crime scenes in bad neighborhoods where multiple guns are being recovered. That is yet another problem that white America could drive around. But if we really believe that all of us matter, all of us have to understand what is happening. Communities of color need to demand answers. Police and civilian leaders need to demand answers. Academic researchers need to hit this hard. What could be driving an increase in murder in some cities, in all regions of this country, all at the same time? What explains that map? and that calendar. 
why is it happening in all these different places and all of a sudden? I have been part of a lot of thoughtful conversations in the last couple months with law enforcement, elected officials, academics, and community leaders about this. And I've heard a lot of theories, reasonable theories. Some have said maybe it's the return of violent offenders who have finished long jail terms. Some say maybe it's cheap heroin or synthetic drugs. Some have said, well, maybe because we busted up big gangs successfully, smaller gangs are now fighting for turf. Some have said maybe it's a change somehow in the bail system or charging or sentencing. Some have said maybe something's changing with respect to the availability of guns. And these are all useful suggestions. But to my mind, none of them explain both the map and the calendar in places all over the country, all in the first 10 months of this year. I've also heard another explanation in conversations all over the country. And nobody says this on the record. Nobody says this in public. But police and elected officials are quietly saying to themselves, and they've said it to me, and I'm going to say it to you. It's the one explanation that, to my mind, explains the calendar and the map that makes the most sense. Maybe something in policing has changed. In today's YouTube world, are officers reluctant to get out of their cars and do the work that controls violent crime? Are officers answering 911 calls, but avoiding the informal contact that keeps bad guys from standing around, especially with guns? I spoke to officers privately in one big city precinct who described being surrounded by young people with mobile phones held high, taunting them when they get out of their cars. They said to me, We feel under siege, and we don't feel much like getting out of our cars. I've been told about a senior police leader in this country who urged his force to remember that our political leadership has no tolerance for any of you being involved in the next viral video. And so the suggestion, the question that's been asked of me is, are these kinds of things changing police behavior all over the country? And is that what explains the map and the calendar? The honest answer is, I don't know. And I don't know that that explains it entirely. But I do have a strong sense that some part of the explanation is a chill wind that has blown through law enforcement over the last year. And that wind is surely changing behavior. Now, part of that behavior change is to be welcomed as we continue to have important discussions about police conduct, de-escalation, and the use of deadly force. Those are essential discussions, and law enforcement will get better as a result. But we can't lose sight of the fact that there really are bad people standing on the street with guns. The young men dying on the streets of those cities that are seeing that dramatic spike are not committing suicide. They're not being shot by cops. They're being killed, police chiefs tell me, by other young men with guns. Lives are saved when those potential killers are confronted by a police officer, by a strong police presence, and honest to goodness up close, what are you guys doing standing on this corner at 1 o'clock in the morning policing. All of us, civilians, law enforcement, white, black, Latino, all of us have an interest in that kind of policing. We need to be very careful it does not drift away from us in an age of viral videos or there will be profound consequences. If we are not careful, we will lose the space in American life to talk about criminal justice reform, which is essential, and effective police interactions with civilians, which are also essential. In a way, the conversations we're having today to make ourselves better, to focus better on sentencing, recidivism, drug treatment, preparing people to reenter the community 
are a welcome luxury of the fact that as of 2014, we had a violent crime rate we had not seen in 50 years. If what we're seeing in America continues, we will be back to talking about how law enforcement needs to rescue black neighborhoods from the grip of violence. All lives matter too much for us to let that happen. We need to figure out what is happening, and we must deal with it now. One of the ways to get a better handle on what is happening in this country is through more and better information. Now, I know that data or data, depending on where you're from, is a dry word. Right? And when people start talking about we need better data, folks tend to tune out. But it is critical because it is only good information that gives us a full picture of what's happening. It's what smart people use to make decisions in all walks of life, in all kinds of work. It saves lives in medicine by allowing a doctor in a hospital in Chicago to know whether she is confronting local food poisoning or a nationwide epidemic and treat accordingly. I have been pressing for more data for a couple of months now, and I'm going to continue to do so. Data related to violent crime and homicides. Data related to officer-involved shootings. Data related to altercations with citizens and attacks against police officers. The good news is that after months of discussion, it's clear to me that law enforcement leaders see it as I do. And I'm actually optimistic that our country will get to the place where we have the information we need to better understand crime and policing and to make wise decisions. It may take us a few years to get there, to get all law enforcement to report to the FBI using the National Incident-Based Reporting System, which is a rich source of data about what is happening in crime. But here's the good news or the bad news, depending upon your perspective. I'm here for another eight years, and I will continue to push for this vital information. I will not stop talking about it until we get it. But maybe most of all, we have to remember this is not just data. This is lives. This is families. This is people. And these are not just complex criminal issues. These are complex social issues as old as this country of ours. We need better information to make better decisions. We need everyone working together to find solutions armed with facts. These things are certainly a challenge to law enforcement, and we have to meet it. At a senior level in our government, we're talking about it. The president, thank goodness, is talking about it. The attorney general is talking about it. And I'm going to continue to speak about it as well. I'm getting a chance this Monday to speak to about 10,000 police leaders here in Chicago at the convention center. But I want to meet with you today, especially students, because this is not just a law enforcement challenge. This is your challenge. It is a collective challenge as lawyers, as concerned citizens, as Americans, because these are our communities. These are our neighbors. These are our schools. These are our friends. These are our street corners. These are our public parks. We all should want them to be safe because we all want to thrive. And when drugs and gangs and gun violence start to rip our communities apart, we cannot drive around that problem. We must force ourselves to do the hard work. We have a lot of hard work ahead. We have to weed where we must we must seed wherever we can. We need to talk. We need to listen, not just about easy stuff, but about hard things too. We need to talk and listen about the state of our communities, the state of policing, and the state of our relationships. As the, interim, the, the dean designate said, these conversations are bumpy and difficult because people are challenging. They're awesome, but they are challenging. And I'm a people, and I'm both. 
And perspectives can be really hard to change. We have to find a way to bend these lines towards each other. Here's the good news. It's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate up close. It's hard to hate somebody once you sit and stare in each other's eyes and try to understand where they're coming from and why they feel the way they do. We have to get up close if we're going to bend these lines. We have to get up close so we can see each other more clearly. We have to resist stereotypes, look for information beyond anecdotes, and understand that we need each other. Our lines are best, law enforcement and civilians, when they travel together and lead us all towards both safety and justice. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you will do. And I look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Director Comey, for those, uh, for those remarks. As the director said, he's interested in having a, a conversation, a dialogue, talking and listening. And I can think of no better way for a dialogue to occur than between two students at the University of Chicago Law School, uh, a former student and a current student. So I'm pleased to introduce a third-year student to lead our conversation with the director. This student is Ruby Garrett. Ruby's currently editor-in-chief of the Legal Forum. Uh, in two weeks, the Legal Forum will be hosting its annual symposium. And this year's topic is fittingly policing the police. Ruby also participates in two clinics, the Police Accountability Clinic and the Juvenile Justice Clinic. Last year, Ruby served as president of the Black Law Students Association, and under her leadership, our chapter was recognized as the Midwest Region's Chapter of the Year. Ruby also serves on multiple committees and advisory boards here at the law school and across the university, and her talents extend far beyond law. Uh, like the director, she's been active in the law school musical. So I'm very pleased to welcome third-year student Ruby Garrett to the dais for a dialogue with Director Comey. Thank you, Dean Miles, for that introduction, and thank you to everyone who submitted questions in advance. We are very appreciative. What we have done is we have sorted through your questions and we've combined them in order to make sure that we can address as many issues as possible in our limited amount of time. Director Comey, let's begin with questions about law enforcement and the communities that they serve. In the wake of recent public debate over racial discrimination in police forces, what action has the FBI taken to reduce civilian deaths involving police? Thanks, Ruby, and uh, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Um, we've done a number of things. Um, in no particular order, every field office in the FBI has hosted at least one conversation, and most many more than that, following up on the talk I gave at Georgetown. The FBI doesn't do policing, but we know everybody and we're in every community in the United States. So what we've done is, in every community, brought in students, community leaders, and law enforcement to continue to talk about the nature of our interactions and how we can make them better and safer. And then we obviously participate in training around the country, 
And then part of our criminal responsibility is we investigate um, civil rights cases, uh, uh, allegations of uh, unlawful use of force or abuse of color of law. And the reason we do that is to send messages of deterrence, that behavior like that is not tolerated. So I think we're doing it both in a positive way and by sending messages of deterrence through our criminal investigations. And so in terms of that training, what role do you think that the FBI can and should play in training local police districts on how to deal with racially sensitive policing? That's a great question. I'm not sure the FBI is best equipped to do that. The Department of Justice as a whole is, and through the community-oriented policing uh, section of the Department of Justice, they do a lot of that. What we do is training more in law enforcement uh, tactics. We host a national academy where we teach police leaders how to oversee other police leaders. We talk there about use of force and, uh, and the laws that govern use of force. But in terms of things like recognizing your implicit bias, de-escalation, those are things we're not experts in. Right? We think our folks know how to do that. But the teachers of that are the other folks in the Department of Justice's COPS office. Okay. And so in the past, you've commented in the media um, that the media should not have records and data or data um, about police shootings when the government does not, and you spoke a little bit about it today. Um, how do you propose to make this change a reality? Yeah, I wasn't saying the, the media shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. It's just that they, they shouldn't be the authoritative source because it's hard for me to think of a governmental action that is more inherently governmental than the use of deadly force between law enforcement and civilians. So I think it's embarrassing, honestly, and ridiculous that we as a government don't have the data or data. Uh, And that the Washington Post is collecting it and the Guardian newspaper is collecting it and they're trying to do it through public source information. That makes no sense to me. I think we owe it to the civilians that pay our salaries and that we're supposed to serve and protect to gather the information and make it available in a transparent way to researchers and to ourselves so we can make better decisions. After Ferguson, I remember this vividly. I was sitting in my office, and I said to my staff last August, I want to see the data on the number of shootings involving law enforcement and African-American citizens, and I want it sorted by area, and I want it sorted over time. I want to see changes. And they said, we have no such thing. We can't give you that information. And my reaction was, right, you could tell how many people saw The Martian last weekend and sort that by... And sort it by location. You could tell how many people showed up with a sniffly nose in an emergency room anywhere in the country. We cannot, as a country, say how many people were shot anywhere in the country. Every single conversation about law enforcement and and use of force, by definition, is uninformed. I cannot tell you whether shootings are up, down, or flat, because we don't have the data. And so my, my mission, my passion, is to cajole beg, uh, embarrass people to give the data to the federal government. The FBI is the repository of it. We have no authority. All of you law students know how our our wonderful country is organized. The federal government does not have the authority to order the 18,000 law enforcement organizations in the United States to give us that information. So it's up to us to convince people that this is in everybody's interest to do. It's one of the reasons I'm here to talk on Monday to 10,000 leaders, to tell them this is in everybody's interest. And there's a vehicle to do it. I won't get into the boring details, but we have the software. It is not that hard uh, to be able to collect this information. And so what do you think your biggest challenge is going to be in trying to collect this information and to cajole or beg people into providing it? I think a couple. Um, I think one is is, uh, 
a lot of, most police departments in the United States are very small. I forget the numbers, but thousands of them are fewer than 20 officers. And so I think they look at it saying, how are we going to input data to send to the FBI? And we got to get them over the hurdle, get them to a place to understand it's not that hard. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is, there's a political issue. Because when we collect richer data about crime, it's going to look like crime went up in the jurisdictions that make the change. Because the way it works now is, for years, we've had something called uniform crime reports, where police organizations report in summary categories an offense. The NIBR system that I mentioned, National Incident-Based Reporting System, collects rich data about every incident. So you'll know, was there a sexual assault and a shooting and a possession of a weapon and a resisting arrest and the demographics of everybody involved, all kinds of details. The problem is, it's going to look to political leaders like, holy cow, now we have all of these offenses. When actually they were always there, they were just hidden under the summary category where they only listed the lead offense. I actually don't think that's that hard. 16 states are fully compliant. Right? The great state of Tennessee, fully compliant with NIBRS. They're doing okay. And so what we've told them we will do is we'll publish both for years so that you can go to your newspapers and your political leaders, your police chief, and say, here's what it would have been under the old system. Here's what it is because the FBI has this richer data field. It's the same thing. And I'm, I think people in the media are smart enough to understand that. Your political leaders will understand that. And so that's the political concern we've got to get them over. And so shifting gears a little bit, uh, the surveillance state has recently come under attack, under attack from activists and policymakers alike. How do you see surveillance changing in our lifetime? Will it only get more aggressive, or are we seeing the pendulum swing to the other side? The surveillance state? You mean that's me? <laughs> uh, I'm not going to quibble with the predicate. Um, yeah, I think we are having... First of all, it's hard to say... Um, I can't see the future clearly enough, and also I don't know what um, numbers I would use to count surveillance exactly. I think one of the real challenges for everybody in law enforcement is uh, the flip side of the golden age of communication. It is the golden age of communication, that there's so many different modes with which to communicate, and so it becomes harder and harder for people in law enforcement with judicial authorization to figure out where the, the criminals might be communicating and collect that. And so I think that it's, I would bet that overall, we will be able to collect, again, pursuant to a court order, far less as a percentage of total communication as the, as the proliferation continues. A challenge that I've talked about a lot is we're increasingly unable to get our court orders complied with because the communication, whether it's in motion or sitting on a device, is strongly encrypted and we get nothing but gobbledygook, that is a real problem that conflicts with another value that, that I hope everybody here cares about. I love strong encryption. I think if my, uh, if my security background paperwork had been strongly encrypted, uh, people wouldn't be reading it today because it wouldn't have been readable when it was stolen from the U.S. government. Um, I like strong encryption. The challenge is how do we reconcile that, which is we need safety and security on the Internet, with our need for public safety. Those two things we all care about are colliding right now. It's the mother of all problems. Uh, there's not an easy answer to it. What I've been trying to do is facilitate a conversation about it. Maybe we'll talk more about it today. And so I guess kind of to that point, um, someone wanted to know what do you think the proper balance is between government surveillance and privacy? 
you know, hard to hard to articulate as a as a particular balance point. I think the key is that all government surveillance is shot through with the design of the founders. Right? What I tell people is, look, I, I think I'm a good person, but I don't think you should trust me. I think what you ought to want to know is how is he overseen. How is the, the genius of the founders was right? You knowing you can't trust people, separating powers among branches and setting interests against interests. The question that should always be asked about surveillance authorities is, how are they checked and balanced? Right? So how are the other branches involved in trying to make sure that this guy and others don't fall in love with their own virtue and do something that they shouldn't do? Um, I think that will assure us, as best we can be assured in an imperfect world, that we're striking the balance right. And so sometimes we can share directly with people what we do, what we collect, and how we collect it, other times we can't, but surely we can share it with the people's elected representatives. So I was yesterday in front of the House Judiciary Committee, and I said this, I'll probably regret it. I said, you shouldn't trust me. You should oversee me. Right? You should check me. You should balance me. You should want to know, how am I using these authorities? Because it's only by all three branches being actively involved that we have the best bet at making sure that whatever we're doing, it's consistent with our notion of what the government should be doing. And so in your speech, um, you covered uh, the history and spoke about the progress that we have made um, in making um, communities safer. So what would you say are the greatest challenges for law enforcement today? I think the greatest challenge is, is this, the greatest challenge is this, uh, the separate, what the president calls a slow rolling crisis. It's this, the incidents that are pushing the two lines apart and and incidents become viral on both directions. The incidents that move, which is why they have such power to move those lines. And so earning that back where trust has been lost is really, really hard. And I meant what I said. I was in Cleveland the other day talking about how hard this is. And Cleveland was both, um, it was both depressing given how much pain there is in the community. But in an odd way, I left there kind of uplifted because of the people that are in leadership in law enforcement and in the community who appear to understand there's nothing scientific. We just got to get up close to each other. There was this inspiring moment. actually brought tears to my eyes. A, a young person, there were high school kids there, a young person in the front asked the chief to define community policing. And Chief Williams leapt up, walked down, extended his hand, and said, I'm Calvin Williams. And go, what's he doing? He said, that's community policing. I'm trying to look into you, you're trying to look into me. And getting that, the reason I keep talking about that closeness is, as I said at Georgetown, it's hard for me. I'm a white guy, I'm 54 years old, I grew up in northern New Jersey, I've had a certain background. It is really hard for me to imagine how a 19-year-old African-American man walking home from the library is experiencing an encounter with those of us in law enforcement. But we got to. Right? we got to try and break out of the me's we're trapped in and try and understand, so how is he perceiving this encounter? But the reverse has to happen. And I've never met anybody who joined law enforcement to help white people or black people, Latino people, or Asian people. And I've never known anybody in law enforcement who, when the 911 call comes, says, what if there's a white person I'm going to help? They just go. Right? There's a million people in uniform in law enforcement in the United States like any big family, we're going to have our weird uncles and cousins and, and uh, problem children. But in the main, these are folks who don't make much dough and are doing this, which is dangerous work, 
because they want to do something good. So part of our task is get people to see inside of who we are. But it can be very hard if you stay in your car. Because if you stay in your car, you're an object, and the person, that 19-year-old guy, he's an object. They only become human beings and susceptible of connection when we get out of our cars and talk to each other. But it's really hard. It's really hard. And so this is, I guess, going back to history. How does the agency internally and externally explain its participation in COINTELPRO in the 1960s? Yeah, that's actually a great question. There was a series of COINTELPROs, as I understand the history. Uh, one focused on uh, the black community and others on different communities. The idea was there's a subversive element and they have to be disrupted by offensive operations by the FBI. What we try to do internally and externally is talk about it. We require all new agents in training, all new analysts in training, to take a curriculum focused on the FBI's interaction with Dr. Martin Luther King. And as part of that curriculum, travel to the King Memorial, which I hope everybody gets a chance to visit, uh, on the banks of the Tidal Basin in Washington. And the curriculum is designed to force them to think. We're not going to tell them what conclusion to reach. We're going to show them our history and then say, how do you think that's consistent with our values, with the rule of law, with oversight? How do you think about that? And the feedback from the students has been really good. So it's going to be a feature. As long as I'm director, it's going to be a feature. I think that talking, talking, talking about it is how we air it. There's a tendency when you work in an organization where you've done something bad to say, well, we're focused on the future. But actually the past shapes the future. And so it's the reason I keep under the glass in the corner of my desk the single-page wiretap application, so-called, that Director Hoover sent to Bobby Kennedy asking for permission to bug Martin Luther King. It's five sentences long. It doesn't have any facts. Just an assertion that this communist influence in the, and the racial situation requires that we bug this man. No time date, no restriction, and it's signed J. Edgar Hoover, and it's signed Robert F. Kennedy, and then it went. And I keep it there under the glass, because that's actually the corner of my desk where every morning when I come in, I put a big stack of applications that we're making to wiretap people in national security cases. And we have to make the application. It goes to the Department of Justice, then to federal judges to review. And these things are as thick as my wrist, some of them as thick as my leg. And I actually put them on top there, because sometimes I hear my people say what a pain in the neck it is to have to do all these things. And I say, yeah, it's a pain in the neck. It's a really good pain in the neck. Because I'm not trying to pick on Hoover or Kennedy. What I tell everyone as part of this curriculum is, they were people. People are dangerous. Because people fall in love with their own righteousness. I'm highly confident Hoover and Kennedy believed they were doing the right thing. Right? And that's the danger. They were not overseen. They were not checked. They were not balanced. Those thick applications, because they go to the third branch, is oversight and constraint. We will not fall in love with our own view of someone else is saying, ah, that doesn't make any sense, and pokes at it. So that's why I do it. And so that constant talking um, is the answer to dealing with an ugly history and trying to make it better in the future. And so one of the students mentioned the visits um, to the King Memorial, and they were wanting you to speak about that as well as uh, requiring them to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum and why you think that those visits are important. The Holocaust uh, Museum visits it started under my predecessor, and I've continued it. And I've continued it because I think that is a gut-wrenching, 
I don't know how many of you, I hope you also get a chance to visit that, a gut-wrenching, nauseating, vertigo-inducing exposure to uh, the abuse of power on a scale that's almost impossible to imagine. And I think that's also another great lesson in what people are like. Because the lesson of the Holocaust Museum, if you're not careful, will just be, they were evil people. When I think the lesson is, most of them were good people who allowed their moral authority to be surrendered to a group. And they were hijacked. And so good people perpetrated And that is a terrifying message about what we're capable of as human beings. And I want my people to feel that burning in their chest so you don't forget it throughout a career of the FBI. I added the King Memorial visit because I think that is... The the, the danger with the visit to the Holocaust Museum is the evil is so extraordinary and so far away in time and place is a danger. Some will say, well, that's that's a thing over there. And we try to make sure they don't see it that way. But our interaction with Dr. King is a living part of the FBI, and so it's a reminder of some of the same themes in a very personal and direct way for a bureau employee. So that's why we do both. And how much of your role as the director is to maintain a balance between agency effectiveness and compliance with the law? Um, It's a huge part of my job, but I actually don't even think of it that way. I don't think of it as effectiveness and compliance. I think we're only effective when we are uh, maniacs, frankly, about the rule of law. Uh, I believe the spine of the FBI is the rule of law. We do a ton of training on it for our new people. Training's important, but the best definition of culture is the way things are really done no matter what they tell you in training. So it's actually, the training is necessary but not sufficient. So it's really important that we constantly talk about it about the importance of the Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment, the First Amendment, that it becomes part of our fabric. And that is one of the really cool things about the FBI. It is. It's one of the reasons it would have been a mistake to divide the FBI into a national security organization and a law enforcement organization because there's a danger that that national domestic intelligence agency would lose that intuitive Bill of Rights uh, orientation that's part of the criminal work And the other way we stay focused on it is we're constantly interacting with judges. Our work is subject to scrutiny constantly. That's great for us. And so I actually think we're only effective if we are. And as we've told the whole organization, we are only as good as the American people's confidence in us that we're honest, independent, and competent. Um, We sent dozens of agents to Ferguson, Missouri uh, after the riots in August 2014, and we had them dress in business attire and wear ray jackets over the top, unbuttoned, and they went around and knocked on hundreds of doors. Everybody talked to us because they saw the FBI, and I think they thought, okay, these are people who are interested in the truth. And as I keep saying to all the new people in the organization, that is a gift, right? And that only happens because people know you are independent and care only about what's true. And the reason you get that and the way you nurture that is to have part of your being be that rule of law. So it is, it's not a trade-off. It's actually both. Effectiveness and adherence to the rule of law is, is everything. And if we lose it, we're done. And so earlier um, in this conversation, you spoke about you favoring encryption. 
And a student wants to know, since you have spoken at length about the challenges posed to law enforcement by going dark and the growing adoption of encryption by major U.S. tech companies, yet the administration and others sharing similar views, um, like U.K. Prime Minister David Cameron, have distanced themselves from this position. In addition, prominent members of the national security community, including Michael Chertoff and Michael Hayden have publicly supported ubiquitous, strong encryption. Is this a lost battle for law enforcement? And what do you see as the best way forward? Showing my U of C training, I have like seven issues with the predication of the question. Uh, uh, maybe I'll start with battle. Uh, I actually don't see it as a battle, and I'm working so hard to make sure it's not a battle. Battles are fought between people who don't share values. As I said earlier, I actually think everybody in this conversation shares the same values. What we don't share is a clear vision of, so how can we maximize both of those values? Safety and security on the Internet. We've got to have strong encryption, and we've got to be able to find and intercept the communications of really bad people. Right? That lives depend upon our ability to do that. So how do we do that? Um, I don't think the administration or Prime Minister Cameron or anybody else that I've talked to in government has distanced themselves from the need to resolve that. What the administration decided, which I agree with, is that it is not the time to seek legislation now. This is too hard. And even I don't have a clear picture of how we're going to solve the problem. I think the most important thing I can do is surface the problem. And I keep saying to folks, look, the FBI is not an alien force imposed on America from Mars. We belong to the American people. We only have the powers given to us by the American people through Congress. And I'm pretty sure my job is, if one of those tools is not working anywhere near the way you may expect it is working, i got to tell you, democracy should never drift to a place where then everybody turns around and looks at the FBI and says, what do you mean you can't? What? This child's missing. This terrorism, what do you mean you can't? We shouldn't drift. We should talk. And so what I'm saying is, there is a problem and I think all serious people who look at this carefully say, yeah, you're right, there is a problem. And a lot of people say, it's not worth resolving because this value is actually more important, so there are costs on this side. And that's not an unreasonable position. Others say, it's just too hard. That's the one I'm most skeptical about. Because, first of all, what is it? Right? Going dark is many different things. It's devices where a judge's court order can't open it. It's wiretaps where a judge's order doesn't produce information that can be read. And so people say it's too hard without material diminution in security. Maybe. But I look at companies that are doing it today. Right? The, the major internet service providers, right? you, you probably have your email through many of them, strongly encrypt in motion, decrypt so they can read your email so they can send your ads, then they encrypt again. They comply with judges' orders, and no one's telling me they're materially insecure from a security perspective. So I'm a little skeptical. But mostly, I believe we haven't really tried. No one's really been incentivized. I mean, what business has incentive to try and figure out a way to give the government the ability to execute a court order, right? And so I think we have to continue to talk about it so that everybody, and the people in the tech companies are good people. When they see the darkness that I see, their reaction is, ooh, let's have conversations, talk about what might be able to be possible technically. So we're having that now. Everybody should talk about this. And maybe we decide nothing can be done, but we ought to talk. So we're talking to the tech companies, we're talking to law enforcement, we're talking to our allies, because a big part of this has to be an international thing. Um, and so we'll just keep at it. But I really don't see it as a battle. The best thing that's happened in the last year in this is the venom is dropping. Right? 
I may be an idiot, but at least people don't think I'm an evil idiot, I think, on this. And so it's the venom is dropping, and people are having serious conversations where they're saying, ah, actually, no, that couldn't work, that couldn't work, that's great. And so we're going to keep doing that. The administration has not said we will not seek legislation. They have said we will not seek legislation now. And so in your speech, you spoke a bit about the drug epidemic in the U.S. What role should and will the FBI play in de-escalating the current Mexican drug wars? Well, the Mexican drug wars are primarily the responsibility of the Mexican government. Uh, We work, along with DEA and the State Department, pretty closely trying to help them deal with that. The part of that that's most important for America is there are waves of highly pure methamphetamine and heroin washing into the United States now that are changing our country. And I've learned from our friends at DEA who have the lead at the federal level on drugs that there's only one piece of good news in the United States on drugs. Cocaine use dropped to a low point in 2006 and has stayed very low. That's it. Everything else is exploding. Highly pure heroin is washing over this country and far more people are dying from heroin overdoses than from car crashes. And far more people are consuming highly pure meth. All of that stuff, which used to come from other places, is now coming from Mexico. They're growing poppies in southern Mexico, they're refining into heroin, and it's washing into the United States. The meth is being made in, in Mexico and being pushed in the United States. What we're trying to do, again, DEA is our leader on this, is help them interrupt the huge trafficking organizations for a practical reason. We're trying to drive the price up, right, because price affects usage. The, the plague that we're having with heroin is, is being driven in large part, as I understand it, by kids who would otherwise, or young people who would use pills, are finding this highly pure heroin that's coming from Mexico to be far cheaper and a more powerful high, and it's killing them. But they're moving over to it because the Mexican traffickers are gaining market share by, everybody in Chicago will understand this, by pushing down the price, which is getting them more customers. And they're actually starting to do things like offer loss leaders, like free methamphetamine, with a heroin order to try and grow the business. Huge, huge problem. And obviously the biggest part of it, as I alluded to in my speech, is the demand for drugs. We can lock up Mexicans. We can lock up Latino youths, we can lock up black youths dealing drugs in our countries until the end of time. We will be doing that until the end of time unless we deal with the demand side of it because that's what's driving it. Um, And shame on us if we continue to drive around this problem because it's primarily a white America problem and focus on locking up those people of color. Shame on us. We have to do both. We've got to disrupt the drug trade. We have to stop the demand. We own that problem. And so keeping the international focus but shifting to a different crime, um, today more and more crimes such as cyber crimes are carried out across borders. However, it's very difficult to fight against such international crimes effectively in part due to the necessity of cooperation from countries such as China and Russia. What is the FBI doing to build relationships with those countries? With China and Russia in particular? Yes. Yeah, it's a work in progress. (laughs) We look for areas where, uh, without regard to political differences, there's commonality. And we tend to find it in counterterrorism, violent crime, crimes against children. It doesn't matter what your politics are, that is offensive to you. Um, And organized crime, but that's where it gets a little tricky. Um, There's a significant amount of cyber crime that comes at us from Russia, 
and we, I wouldn't describe our cooperation with the Russians as robust in trying to disrupt that, where we have terrific cooperation in that relationships that have been transformed are the former Soviet states in Eastern Europe and the rest of Europe. Because a lot of those countries have had a lot of cyber criminals sitting in them. Right? Romania, where Ceausescu put tremendous emphasis on developing tech talent. Right? After his fall, a lot of that tech talent turned to crime. The Romanians have been spectacular at, at clamping down on it. And one of the ways they do it is sharing information and technology with us. And so we try to find ways to carve things out from politics. You know, we've had some very promising public statements by the Chinese on cyber theft. Time will tell, as the president said, we need both words and actions. And so we're watching that space. I have not yet reassigned anyone. And so on a lighter note, which fictional character comes closest to your ideal law enforcement official? <laughs> uh, well, here's a distinction that all of you will get. Atticus Finch from the first book. <laughs> Wait a minute, or is that the second book? From To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, always been an uh, inspirational figure for me. I have not yet read Set of Watchmen. I'm not convinced it's a real deal, so I'm not going to bring myself to read it yet. Uh, but I just think that that... Uh, yeah, that... Uh, I have a picture of my grandfather. Atticus Finch on my wall at headquarters, who was a police officer. Uh, they, they remind me of each other. Someone of character, humanity, humility, and um, good humor. Yeah, I, I think people, especially in our line of work, we see a lot of darkness in our work. You've got to be able to laugh. Because if you can't laugh, your soul starts to get crushed, and that affects the way you deal with people. And so you've got to release some of that pain that you absorb. Because I talked about in the Georgetown speech, the danger we face is when you see badness all day long, you can start to assume everybody in the area where I work is bad. So everybody's treated as a perp. And you know, NPR had this fascinating piece that I saw where they talked about officers who had just done an overnight shift and then they moved to a day shift in hard-hit neighborhoods. All of a sudden, they saw a different world. They didn't realize there were so many families and moms and dads and grandparents. Their view was warped by... The, the darkness of their work, having to encounter people in a criminal setting. And so I do think that laughter, uh, the ability to laugh at yourself and a little bit with the world is important. And so on a related note, do you think that the portrayal of FBI agents in the media is accurate? <laughs> Depends on which show you're watching. <laughs> I've been asked a lot about the new show Quantico, which I'm told is very popular among a demographic that may be represented in this room and looking at a lot of young faces. Um, it's not like that. Uh, yes, we're young. Yes, we're attractive. But no, we are not all sleeping with each other uh, and chasing terrorists around in our classic Quantico. Uh, it, there isn't a single... It's actually one of my dreams, something I'm working on, uh, to date myself. When I was a kid, every middle school boy thought about the FBI. And there was a reason for that. There were only three channels plus PBS, and you had to get up to change them. And at least in New York, it was ABC, I think, on Sunday nights, was the FBI. And it was so cool. Now, it would be terrible to see today, because cool has changed. Cool is much cooler. But, <laughs> but uh, I dream of a day, one of our many challenges in the FBI is diversity. Actually, it's a crisis, I think, for us. I dream of a day when every boy and girl, black, white, Latino, Native American, 
it, Asian, it doesn't matter, thinks about the FBI because they see us at that point in their life. The challenge for us is recruiting in college and thereafter is fine, but the FBI, as corny as it sounds, is not something you do, it's something you are, because it's hard and you don't get much money at all. So you have to have an orientation towards service. People decide whether they have that pretty early. And so I'd like to be in a place where we have people see us in a way where maybe we're not sleeping with each other all the time, um, earlier in their lives. And so I'm trying to encourage. We don't do TV, but I'm trying to encourage people. I've met with producers who've come asking whether you know, they have a show idea, would the FBI provide them with technical assistance? And if it's a show that is, doesn't show us all as corrupt, yeah, we're not going to get script control, but we will try and help you because I want kids to see us because uh, I think those kids, the FBI only has one diversity problem, uh, which is trying to get people of all walks of life to try to get in. We're never going to change the standards, and we don't need to. We've got great talent out there. That's our challenge. A lot of places have a second problem, which we don't have. Right? A lot of places it could be hard to be a woman or a person of color working in a place. The good news is, Again, we're a big family, so maybe we have some weird uncles. But in the main, it is a good place to work. We have almost no turnover. Men, women, minority of any sort, special agents, the turnover is 0.5%. Once you come in and do this work, you don't leave. So what I'm trying to do is get to a place where more people try. And shows like Quantico, as much as some parts of it bug me, in a way, if it motivates people of all different walks of life to say, that's pretty cool. Um, You know, again... I'm probably live streaming this. A lot of alumni of the FBI are going to be horrified by what I just said. <laughs> but, hey, anyway, I'll shut up about that now. But I'm just going, to, just, going to get, just going to get in trouble. And so aside from your wonderful law school musical experience, what was the single most important takeaway during your three years at the University of Chicago Law School? I think it was I became a better thinker. Uh, in this sense. What I loved about this place is that smart people were constantly drilling you in the back, in the side, in the head. Uh, And what it forced you to do was, in your mind's eye, orbit a situation and a set of facts and see it almost uh, instantly as others might see it. So what could, okay, this is what I think. What could be said about that? Okay, what could be said about that? What could be said about that? That orbiting is actually the essence of judgment. And, and we talk about this a lot in the FBI. To be good at using power, you have to be able to orbit a situation and then move it in place in time as well. And that's what we did at the law school. We said, okay, so if that, that holding, what if that was 10 years ago and in the Fifth Circuit? How would that change? Or if you change these facts, how would it change? And that mental discipline is judgment. And, and great people in all walks of life, but especially in my world, are people who can see how others might see the decision we're about to make, what could be said about it, or what it might look like in the press or in Congress or five years from now, or how it might be different if this changed or that changed. I learned that here. I mean, I've had a lot of practice. A big part of it is making huge mistakes and having people point them out to you. But here, just get nailed all day long, and I know it's a stressful experience, but that Socratic method, and then the informal Socratic method that takes place in the lounge, where your colleagues are like, no, that's stupid. Here's what you missed. That, that can make you a terrible spouse in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> but but it, it makes you, it helps you be a person of judgment and closely related. It helps you force, there's no such thing in, in our existence as an open mind. 
the biology is too challenging, but it forces you to get as close to an open mind as you can be. And that is really, really important no matter what you do. Yeah, that was what was really great about this place. And are there any closing thoughts that you would like to share? No, I'm grateful for this. Thank you for this, Ruby. I, I just hope that all of you will continue to talk about this. Don't think somebody else owns this problem. Uh, don't think that you don't have a contribution to make. I meant what I said. There's not a fancy way to arc these lines back. It's getting up close. And that requires smart people to want to talk about it. And, and one of the hardest things in life is actually listening. And I've had to learn. I'm still not great at it. I've had to learn and learn and learn. Because most listening is the Washington listen. Right? That's a period of silence where I wait for the other idiot to finish talking. <laughs> so I can say what I plan to say before I came to this debate. That's not real listening. Real listening, which we were drilled into here, is listen with a mind towards being convinced. Right? Don't listen to rebut. Listen. Think, then respond. But that's so hard. One of the hardest things to talk about in American life is race. Right? I believe our problems with race are the central narrative of America's existence. Right? We were born in original sin. And that has been a problem for us forever. We have to get past that and talk, as uncomfortable as it is, especially about issues like that, and listen about issues like that. Uh, and together... We will get better. We, perfect is a long way off. We will get better. And I appreciate you being part of that. Thank you. Thank you for speaking with me. Please join me in thanking Jeff. Thank you so much. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.